0: This show contains strong language and descriptions of violent acts. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're going deep on something we touched on in episode one, but felt there was more to explore. Don King and the numbers game. Don's past as a numbers-running kingpin was just as big a part of his story as his work in the fight game. And the media made sure we all knew. He was the biggest
1: numbers boss in Cleveland and was grossing $15,000 a day.
0: This former
2: numbers racketeer now runs a vast corporation with an estimated worth of $100 million.
0: Don King, the numbers burn. The numbers are, uh, the numbers kingpin. The numbers game, or number racket, was an unofficial form of the lottery system that successfully ran throughout low-income black communities in the mid-20th century. How was it played? Well, Someone would drop by a busy spot where folks hung out, like a barbershop or the neighborhood bar. They'd place a three-digit bet on a slip with a bookie. From there, a runner, someone like Don, would carry the betting slips and the cash between the location and the numbers bank. One lucky person with the winning three digits would collect all the cash. You know, like the lottery. The runners got a cut from the winner for their services. Not a bad business. The numbers game became more than just a quick daily pastime for folks to get a little cash or have some fun. It became a pillar in the community, and it allowed Black folks the chance to have their own economic independence. The numbers runners gave out loans, invested in Black businesses, and became an unofficial bank at a time when Black people didn't have many other options. But there was a dark side to the game too. If someone didn't pay up, well, there could be trouble. An unpaid debt led to King beating a man to death. This hustle, it's how King made his first real cash and developed his business skills. And it's also what connected Don King to a major Supreme Court case that was a civil rights victory. Yeah, I bet you didn't expect that. From something else, I'm Panama Jackson, and this is Power, Don King. In today's episode, MAP versus Ohio.
1: That's stamps.com. Code program. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No.
0: Real quick, let's go back to how King got into the numbers game. When Don's father died, his family didn't have many options to make ends meet. So Don and his siblings sold pies and peanuts with bags of three numbers in them at local gambling houses. The latter ended up being Don's ticket out of poverty. While it was a way for Don to find his come up, the numbers game wasn't beloved by all. In fact, law enforcement took a lot of issue with it.
2: A couple decades before Don King comes on the numbers running scene and certainly during that time they set out to end the illegal gambling and the mafia space in big cities like Cleveland and Detroit.
0: That's Aisha Bell Hardaway. She's an associate professor of law at Case Western University. Aisha's gonna help us understand how all this went down. Basically, the numbers were organized crime. You've seen mob movies. And in all those movies, some cops were making money working for the number runners, and some wanted to clean things up.
2: At the time when all of this was going on, it was a seedy, dark space in society. People were considered criminal and hoodlum.
0: So you had a big illegal business running, and it was pressure to break it up.
2: It became clear when it was time to clean house that they were gonna go after key players.
0: That meant folks like Don. So let's set the stage. It's late 1950s Cleveland, and 25-year-old Don King is a well-known numbers runner who was battling it out with the other lead numbers runners in the city.
2: There's five number running houses and a guy who is the enforcer who says, if you want protection, you got to pay me a certain amount of money every week. And apparently Don King told this guy, no.
0: Clearly, the enforcer wasn't offering protection out of the goodness of his heart. This was his own hustle to make a buck and it may have been less of a choice and more of a demand. Whatever the actual business model, the enforcers' protection services definitely had their place in this underworld. Don had already been run upon as a top player.
2: He had been shot in the back of the head. I mean, one might argue that he was in need of protection.
0: Don choosing to take his chances opened him up to trouble with his rivals big time. Danger came knocking at his door, or more like blew up his door on May 20th, 1957.
2: Because he had rebuffed the demands, this bomb had been set off at his house. He hadn't been injured, although he was apparently home.
0: Days after the bombing, Don reached out to a cop he had a relationship with, a cop who was supposed to be cracking down on gambling advice. King told the cop that he believed it was this enforcer, the same guy who had offered him protection, who blew up his house. Elsewhere, an anonymous tip came in about where this person could be found. So the police followed it up.
2: And the Cleveland police find themselves at a house near 147th and Milverton, which is occupied by a woman named Dalry Map. And Dalry Map lived on the second floor with her daughter and she had some connection to this number running.
0: Now, Map's exact role in the numbers game is a little fuzzy. She wasn't a runner herself, but it was known that she associated with folks who were. A few days after the bombing of Don's house on May 23rd, 1957, three cops showed up at Dalry's door. They rolled up on her on the hunt for the enforcer.
2: They find themselves at Ms. Mapp's house, purportedly looking for him or evidence of a bombing, which then sort of morphed into evidence of number running.
0: Dalry was well connected in Cleveland. She was part of a bougie scene that had given her access to things and people that other Black folks at the time didn't have. Like people that could help her now that she had the cops on the other side of her door.
2: She has a lawyer that she can call. (laughs) She calls the lawyer and the lawyer says if they don't have a warrant, don't let them in.
0: So she doesn't. She leaves them right where they are on her doorstep. The cops though, were not amused.
2: They didn't take well to that. At some point, some hours later, when they had increased in their numbers outside our house, the police decide to bust in.
0: Dahlry demands to see a warrant, but the gang of pissed off cops isn't having it, even though she was well within her rights to demand it. And we can guess what happens next.
2: The police roughed her up and ran roughshod throughout every corner of her house. And one of the lead detectives who had been pursuing the main suspect, he shows her a warrant and she snatches it out of his hand and stuffs it down her shirt. He makes no bones about wrestling it out of her shirt.
0: Dahlry's defiance made them even more mad. So they take it a step further and handcuff her to her bed to keep her out of their way. They keep searching, but they don't find the enforcer. What they do find are indecent materials they think are enough to arrest Dahri for having and to charge her with.
2: She was prosecuted not for having anything to do with number running. She was prosecuted essentially for indecency laws, you know, pornography, because of some nudie magazines and some hand-drawn pencil portraits of a naked woman.
0: Yeah, petty. Map claims the items weren't hers, but instead belonged to a former tenant that had moved out of the downstairs unit she rented out. The cops couldn't have cared less. Mapp stands trial for the obscenity charges, and on September 4, 1958, she's found guilty and is sentenced to one to seven years in prison. But Mapp and her lawyers appealed the decision. Her lawyers felt that police barging into homes like this without a warrant was unconstitutional. But at the time... No one had challenged this sort of raid in court to make it required that police have warrants. In the end, the court decides to uphold the conviction. Dalry and her team, they don't back down, though. They take Dalry's case to the Ohio Supreme Court with some backup from the ACLU.
2: They argued that the First Amendment should have precluded her from being convicted for the pornography, if you will, but also argued that the whole search in and of itself should be invalid because of the Fourth
0: Amendment. In simple terms, the Fourth Amendment should have protected Dahlry from having her home run through unless the cops produced a valid warrant. This is where things pick up a little traction.
2: The majority of the seven Ohio Supreme Court justices who heard the appeal agreed.
0: Out of the seven justices, Dahlry had four vote in her favor. That was a majority of sorts, but not enough. Matt needed a supermajority. She needed six out of those seven on her side, and that just wasn't happening. So she goes for another appeal. And in the middle of this process, when the prosecutor attempts to deny the appeal, something comes to light that changes things big time.
2: The county prosecutor never bothered to furnish a warrant during the trial and never gave any explanation for why or how a warrant couldn't be entered into evidence. But at some point they claim that they did in fact have one, they just couldn't produce it.
0: You heard that right. It turns out the warrant that Dalry had asked to see the night of her arrest, the one the cops wrestled her for at one point, it didn't exist. Later, it was speculated that the paper they presented to Dalry at the time may have been blank. Ain't that some mess. This was enough to justify Mapp's lawyer taking this all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. It was a solid victory. After four years fighting the system, on June 19, 1961, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 in favor of Dahlry saying that the evidence obtained from her home was done so by unconstitutional means and that for this reason, it could not be admissible in court. Dahlry's conviction was thrown out and this rule, the Exclusionary Rule, went on to be recognized in all states and the federal government. We have Maps' perseverance to thank for this protection. The fact that the US Supreme Court backed a black woman in the 1960s when there was a whole mess of racial struggle occurring in the background isn't lost on me. And Don King being the first domino in this series of events is just another twist in his amazing story. The numbers game was the thing that Don and Dalry both had in common. For all the good and bad it brought to the lives of the folks close to it, it was a major facet in black America. As for the numbers game itself, that crackdown did happen. How do you end illegal running? Same way we've seen it go down with things like alcohol and weed. You make it legal. In the 1970s, the lottery became an official thing throughout the United States. You could find it on newsstands, grocery stores, gas stations. And the state was collecting between two and three hundred million dollars, not the Don Kings of the world. That irony wasn't lost on Don. Here he is in 1982, talking about it with David Letterman.
2: I was in the numbers business. Now the state is heralding the numbers business. Yeah. You know, everybody, look, there's a lottery ball jumping up. The numbers 978.
1: Yeah. When I did that... What was the number today, Don? I did don't you get know it? Today. You know...
0: <laughs> if you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Kyra Aceved Bonsu. Power Don King is hosted by me... Panama Jackson our producer is Tiffany Walker associate producers are Kyra Asabe Bonsu and India Witkin this episode was edited by Grant Irving mixing and sound design by Will Short at Spoke Media production management by Jennifer Mystery executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig our theme song is by Nolan Schneider special thanks to Steve Ackerman